The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. This is the Word of God, Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him, and went away. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are giving in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you'd open your word by means of instruction and encouragement. Draw us unto yourself, for we we need you, and we need the Savior, the risen Savior, who is the assurance of our own salvation. Bless us now in speaking and in hearing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure you've heard the saying, uh, the only two certain things in life are death and taxes. Death and taxes. Well, apparently not so certain if you're a Sadducee or a Pharisee, or if you're a five-year-old boy. I received a text from one of you last night, and the text read this. I was preparing the boys for the sermon in the morning and asked if they knew what taxes were. And I've removed the name. So-and-so said, it's a kind of yellow car. Then I asked my other son if he knew what the government was, and he said, people who take money. So a little bit of uncertainty on death and taxes uh, in those interactions. But very clearly, not just uncertainty, but unbelief in Pharisees and 
in Sadducees. They've come again to challenge the authority of Messiah, seeking with malice to entangle the Christ in his words. The Pharisees come asking about taxation uh, and loyalties to to which leader, God or, or to Caesar. The Sadducees, who deny the resurrection, come asking a question about the resurrection. Both questions, we can be sure, were designed to trap the Lord Jesus Christ, designed to entangle him so that they might bring a charge of wrongdoing against him. And here we see, friends, profound unbelief, profound ignorance, and profound folly. These are people who hated Christ. I want to say to you from the outset, don't be surprised when the world treats you in the same way. As they treated your master, so they will treat you. As they had contempt for him, so will they have contempt for you, at least if your life looks anything like the master's. What folly we see here. Folly for the Jews, yet for us it is wisdom for life and eternal hope. What we see here is very clear, a challenge about taxes, verse 15, then a challenge about the resurrection, verse 23. A challenge about taxes, a challenge to the Messiah, a challenge to his authority and his office. Remember the context of Matthew's gospel, Starting in uh, chapter 21, uh, we've seen the first of those three parables of judgment. Those in the covenant who thought themselves to be something, the firsts, found out they were nothing. They were described as Christ as those who were without saving faith, people from whom the kingdom will be taken and given to others who bear kingdom fruits. And now in these two episodes, we have two of the chief groups of religious leaders in Israel as case studies for the three parables. It's easy to sit in judgment on Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and chief priests and so on. But I think perhaps our chief emotion ought to be pity. Pity that they'd lost their spiritual vision. We might even say pity that they'd gouged their own eyes out, spiritually speaking. And it's striking that in these two passages, our Lord doesn't call them to repentance doesn't call them with the call of the gospel. Yes, he interacts with them, but this is a note of judgment. It's simply stated, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. It's almost as if our Lord is saying, your time has passed or is swiftly passing. The time of judgment has come. The Pharisees in verse 15 come Uh, seeking to entangle Jesus in his words, we read. They plotted. They spent time working out just how they could find fault in him and bring a charge with him. Now, we've read much about the Pharisees, and it's been some time since we've considered who they were. The Pharisees were a a group uh, of of Jews who were really the successors to another group called the Hasidim. The Hasidim. Uh, the Hasidim were the pious or the saints. 
Uh, we, we know today the Hasidim in the form of the Hasidic Jews. The Pharisees were really their successors, and the Pharisees were spiritual separatists, legalists. They hated heathens. They hated tax collectors. They hated anyone who, who they did not view uh, as themselves. They knew such people, John chapter 7, as people who do not know the law. They saw themselves as guardians of the law and separated themselves from anyone who did not keep the law to their standards. Now, note the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in this passage, because they club together here, verse 15 and 16, with the Herodians, people of the party of Herod. And Herod had very little religiosity about him. He certainly didn't love the law. He was part of the political establishment who the Pharisees would have hated. And look at their hypocrisy, not only in joining with the Herodians, but attempting legalistically to separate themselves from the Herodians by not going with them themselves, but sending their disciples with the Herodians. Staggering hypocrisy, inconsistency, Hardly a resounding acclamation of them as people or of their theology. They make good on the old saying here of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they join with the Herodians, the purpose of which is to confront Jesus with a trap. Either he will be found wanting in the secular realm or in the religious and spiritual realm. If Jesus says, no, you should not pay taxes to Caesar, then he'll fall foul of the Herodians. If he says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then he'll fall foul of the Pharisees. That's the landscape of the test before our Lord. You'll notice they come, having plotted to entangle him, they come with malice, verse 18. Malice. Hatred. A considered hatred. This is not a, a hatred of the moment. Spontaneous. It's been brewing for years. And yet they come to him in the guise of honoring him, verse 16. Teacher, we know that you are true. And teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care for anyone's opinion. They're utterly disingenuous. They're liars. They're flatterers, deceivers. Though they have spoken the truth about Christ, he is a teacher. He does teach the way of God truthfully, and he doesn't care for people's opinions. They believe none of it. Otherwise, they would have followed him. They come to him with this disingenuous approach, as it were, as if they could deceive him and pull the wool over his eyes, and then they hit him with the sucker punch, supposedly. Verse 17, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus knows their heart, we're told. Verse 18, aware of their malice. Jesus, aware of their malice, meets their wickedness with the necessary rebuke for the moment. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? You hypocrites. That is, that's about as bad as it can get for a religious person to be called a hypocrite. 
Someone who outwardly goes through the motions, maybe looks the part, but inwardly denies the substance of their faith, does not possess saving faith. They're just an empty shell, a whitewashed tomb. So Jesus puts them to the test. He answers their question by posing a Gordian knot-like question unto them. Verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. We read they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Of course, it's got Caesar's head on it. It's Caesar's coin, Caesar's tax. Jesus answered them, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. It's very simple, isn't it? It, it, It's amazing in its simplicity. We read at the end, when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. They had no answer. The coin belongs to Caesar. Give to him what is due. And there's the theological side of that, that God has placed the governing authorities in their position. And there's the secular side to that, meeting the Herodians. It belongs to Caesar. Give it to him. But the main point of this text is really not about taxes, because what our Lord says next is really the most important thing. Therefore, verse 21, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Yes, by all means, give to Caesar what belongs to him. A Christian paying reasonable and legal taxation is something Christians ought to to do. But our Lord says more. He says, render to God the things that are God's. Such an important principle for the Jews, such an important principle for us. What what are we to render unto God? Speaking first to the Jews, what did their scriptures tell them? The scriptures told them, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, what they were to render to God. They were to love mercy. They were to do do justice. Walk humbly before their God. Or Deuteronomy chapter 10, circumcise therefore the foreskins of your heart and be no longer stubborn. In other words, repent. Believe. Be faithful. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then behave in a manner commensurate with that profession of faith. He's telling them, lose this ridiculous, this this paper-thin self-righteousness that you've concocted for yourself and rest on Christ in all his fullness. Believe on the Lord, then act as if you believe on the Lord. Have the substance of Christ and then live accordingly. You notice our Lord does not affirm their lives here. A Christian is not called to affirm people around them. We're just not. It's a myth of this world. If you don't affirm me, you hate me. Jesus does not affirm their their lives. He critiques their lives. Moreover, he judges their lives. They had not rendered to God what belonged to God. And this, friends, is not just a call for us to pay taxes as we're meant to. More than that, it is a call that we are to render to God what belongs 
to God. If it's right to pay taxes to a villainous governor like Herod, or even worse, the Caesar beyond him, how much more ought we to render praise and honor and glory and obedience to Almighty God? If the lesser is right, surely the greater is right. The chief response to God required of us all, of course, is faith. Faith which takes seriously what God says about himself, what God says about sin, what God says about the Savior, and salvation. That's what we are to take seriously, and we are to accept it. We're to trust it. We're to rest upon it. We are to receive Christ Jesus for who he says he is, not according to our imaginations. Resting on him, laying aside every last shred of supposed self-righteousness. We abandon ourselves. If you sing it, you believe it. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Self-righteousness, no matter how great it is, how wonderful in appearance before men, will see you in hell. That's the only destination for self-righteousness. Verse 22, when they heard these wonderful words, they marveled and they left him and went away. Notice that they leave him, they go. They don't stick around, they're not attracted to Jesus, though they marvel They marvel at his cleverness. They marvel at his wisdom. They don't marvel at his life. Friends, is this your response to the Savior today? That you hear this one who says, render to God the things that are God's, and then gives us those very things in our lives, is your response a faith-filled marveling at Christ? God who commands us to believe and then grants us the gift of faith. What a wonder this is. Does your life this day reflect the self-abandonment of faith in one who is not yourself? Does your life this day reflect the humility of one who has been able to abandon themselves and say, I trust not in myself, but in Almighty God and his answer to my sin, Jesus Christ? You see, the gospel is here presented to us. Render to God the things that are God's. What does he want from us? He wants faith. He wants faith above all else. And then faith with fruits that are produced by it. That's the gospel for any here today who do not know Christ. That God sent his son to deal with our sin problem, to live for us and to die for us and to be raised again, that we might have forgiveness of sins, newness of life, a righteousness from heaven, and be assured of our own resurrection into life. That's all in Jesus Christ. If you don't know him this day, we urge you, know him, accept him, trust him on his terms, not your own. It's a great irony that the Pharisees had failed to believe that gospel long foretold in their own scriptures, just as we see the Sadducees also failing to believe that same gospel and that same Christ. Verse 23, 
a challenge from the Sadducees about the resurrection. We go here from one extreme to another. The Pharisees, the religious zealots, the legalists, uh, the Sadducees were really the theological liberals. They denied a central teaching of the Old Covenant, the resurrection of the body. You'll notice verse 23, it's that same day. It's almost like they've been plotting together to come and test Jesus one after another. The same day, the Sadducees come to him. And look at the editorial comment in verse 23 about the Sadducees. The same day the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection? It's a staggering thing for an old covenant Jew to deny the resurrection. It's even more staggering to understand that the party of the Sadducees included the Jewish chief priests. The high priests belong to the party of the Sadducees. Is it any wonder that Jewish religion at the time of Christ was such a mess? The people at the very top, the high priests, belong to a party that denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied fundamentals of old covenant religion. Like the Pharisees and Herodians, they also come with flattery. Verse 24, teacher, teacher. And then they concoct this ridiculous story. Verse 24 following, they're going back to the law of Moses, the Leveret law, where if a man has a wife and has no children and the man dies, then it's up to his brothers to, to marry that woman and raise children on behalf of their dead brother so that that lineage might continue. Uh, the story is this. Uh, there are seven brothers. Uh, one of them marries this woman. The husband dies. Then in turn, six others die. Their question to our Lord Jesus Christ is, verse 28, in the resurrection of the seven, whose wife will she be? They've come with a trap for Christ. If, if she's been married seven times, who's she going to be married to in the resurrection? Friends, their question is not legitimate. You can almost hear it dripping with contempt and mockery of Christ. You can almost hear them laughing under their breath when they say, well, which which one will she be married to in the resurrection? They don't even believe in the resurrection. Our Lord's reply to them is crushing. Because that's where we are in his history with these people. It's crushing. Verse 29. You are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. What a staggering thing to say to these men. I'll come back to that in one moment. And on the basis of what he says there in verse 29, he answers them again in verse 30. He gives them their answer. And the answer is kind of a, how could you be so foolish? How could you be so ignorant? He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels. Our Lord tells us that in the resurrection, our earthly relationships, such as we know them now, will not be replicated in heaven. 
Our existence will be angelic, though with resurrected bodies. There is no marriage or given in marriage. He's saying to them, your art, your question is just stupid. But look at what he says. You are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. And he continues in verse 31, and as for the resurrection of the dead, is there a resurrection? He says, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Do we hear that? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You see, our Lord is tying together there verse 29 and verse 31 and 32. You are wrong because you you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They did not know their scriptures, says our Lord. Of what scriptures is our Lord speaking? We can go back to Exodus chapter 3, which is actually quoted in verses 31 and 32. God appears to Moses and says this, I am the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Our Lord tells us in this passage, quoting that in verse 32, that on the basis of that statement in Exodus 3 verse 6, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Do we hear what God is saying there in Exodus 3? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are long gone, buried in the ground, are yet living. They are not dead. Do not be thinking of them simply as rotting in a grave somewhere. They are alive. Jesus is telling us what God meant in Exodus 3. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in their spirits dwell in the highest heaven, gazing on the face of their Lord's. God is not God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham lives. Isaac lives. Jacob lives. Jesus is saying Exodus 3, 6 is a very proof of the resurrection from the dead. Old Covenant scriptures. Or we could go to the book of Job. Uh, Job chapter 19 and verse 23 Job says this, Oh, that my words were written, oh, that they were inscribed in a book, oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. In the resurrection, he shall see God. What of David? David says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, after his child has died, his child with Bathsheba, the servant said, what is this thing that you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when he died, you arose and ate food. David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I shall go to him. And David provides for us a commentary on that in Psalm 16, which is also applicable to our Lord. 
Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He will be raised. And these are all old covenant texts which point to the reality that the Christian shall be raised. The old covenant ably testified to the resurrection from the dead. But to what is the resurrection a testimony? Is it not testimony to the power of God? You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They did not know the power of God. The power of Almighty God, which raised Jesus from the dead. The power of Almighty God that created us. The power of Almighty God that sustains us. The power of Almighty God that satisfies us daily. The power of Almighty God who will raise our bodies from the grave. When Paul is indicted before Agrippa for preaching the risen Christ, he says in Acts 26, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why do you think it incredible? He's almighty. (laughs) He can do whatever pleases him according to his holy will. For Paul, it was insanity to deny the almighty the right and ability to raise people from the dead. Raising people from the dead is no more trouble to almighty God than raising people from spiritual death. And what a remarkable resurrection it shall be, brothers and sisters. Behold, I tell you a mystery, writes Paul. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Resurrection has overcome death. And we know, do we not, that the reality of a physical resurrection in Scripture corresponds also to the spiritual resurrection, the rebirth of the soul. Prophesied in the Old Covenant again by Jeremiah, we read these words in chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity, 
and I will remember their sins no more. Do we see the great power of God, along with his marvelous mercy, his amazing grace? To enjoy the resurrection unto life, the work of spiritual rebirth or resurrection must precede it. You must be born again. You must have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this astonishing? The crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Again, verse 33 of Matthew 22, when the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But we don't read of any being brought to him savingly. Friends, are we not astonished also? Not just at Jesus' wisdom in teaching the Sadducees or showing the folly of the Pharisees. Are we not astonished at the Christ? What God has done for us, what God has done for you, dear friend. Let's personalize this. You and me, if you're a sincere, sincere Christian here today. We don't want the astonishment of these crowds, the marveling of these crowds. We're not about that, friends. We want the marveling of faith, the astonishment of belief and trust and resting on our Savior, a faith which embraces the fact that we are nothing natively. There is emptiness and guilt and rebellion and vileness in our lives, an astonishment at the mercy and grace of God that in and through salvation, each Christian here today has been raised up and will sit with Christ, given a crown of glory and rule with him as princes and princesses eternally. That's the staggering truth of the gospel of Christ. An astonishment at the reign and rule of our Savior, and that we will be at his right hand. And that astonishment, friends, ought to lead you to great devotion. Um, I want to ask you, friends, is your great devotion to the Lord visible to those around you? Because if it's not, you have to question, are you devoted? If there's no evidence of your devotion, are you devoted? Is there evidence of your great devotion to the Savior? Are you bearing fruit worthy of the kingdom? Are you seeking to obey the Lord in heart, in mind, and in body? Let me encourage each one of us to ask ourselves that question. Are we devoted to the Lord? Are we serving him as we ought to be serving him privately, in our families, in the various relations within families, in the church, in society, your places of business, neighborhoods, wherever you might be, are you devoted to the Lord and then his service? Because, friends, that's true enjoyment. That's true enjoyment. That's true life. It's a life worth living now and certainly one worth having in the age to come. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do pray that not only will you work true faith in us, but also a faith which leads to 
true works, fruit, fit for the kingdom. Lord, we desire to live honorably and well and self-sacrificially before you. Have mercy upon us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.